0: Welcome back to 2 Timothy. We are, well, actually, we just finished 1 Timothy. Now we're on 2 Timothy chapter 1. And our song for today, if we had been in the class, was Take My Life and Let It Be. And uh, Robert Morgan, I've given him a plug before in his great book, um, Then Sinks My Soul, he writes, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, from Philippians 3.8. Although hymnist Frances Havergal, I believe, 36, had served the Lord for years, she felt something was missing in her Christian experience. Then one day in 1873, she received a little book called All for Jesus, which stressed the importance of making Christ the king of every corner and cubicle of one's life. Soon thereafter she made a fresh and complete consecration of herself to Christ. Here's later when asked about it, she replied, Yes. It was on an Advent Sunday, December the second, eighteen seventy three. I first saw clearly the blessedness of true consecration. I saw it as a flash of electric light, and what you see you can never unsee. There must be a full surrender before there can be a full blessedness. Let's open in prayer. Father, we just ask that you would uh, open our eyes to your truth today in our hearts, Lord. I pray you would take away all distractions from every soul that's listening and that we would be able to take your word and apply it to our lives and be a changed people for your glory. And Lord, what we know not teach us and what we have not give us and what we are not make us, for Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, this second epistle to Timothy was written from a dungeon cell. It was dark, it was dank, and it was dismal. The Apostle Paul is awaiting his execution in an underground chamber in Rome's Mar- Marmotime prison. We can just picture this worn, torn apostle, alone and cold, yet not without hope, nor wallowing in self-pity. Rather, we find this man of God focusing on encouraging his dear son in the faith, Timothy, writing a last message, so to speak, to him, to one who was so dear to his heart. Writing a last message is so important. The words of it are so important. It does the soul no good to wallow and feel sorry for itself. We always help ourselves by helping others. That's the biggest way to get out of your holes. Paying attention to hearts is the only way to spend your life well, Ann Voskamp says. Regarding Paul's prison cell, Ironside tells us, if you visit the city of Rome today, you can see that dungeon. You can go down into it and you can look around it, those bare walls, and gaze up at the ceiling where there's just a little hole in the center from which food was dropped down to Paul and water passed through in some kind of vessel, you get an idea of the suffering that he must have endured. There is no window whatsoever through which to look at the outside world. There's no, um, a river passes underneath and there is a cleft on the floor where you can look down and see the water running. It must have been cold and damp and there at all times of the year, particularly in the winter. As I stood there, I had some time, some little realization of what it must have meant for God's servants in the early days to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word of God. Surely, in comparison, the lines for us have fallen into pleasant places, very pleasant places indeed. There's always something so tender, is there not, about one's last message, especially From one whom we have learned to love how we thank god for paul's ministry which continues to minister even to us today as we read this epistle we shall find again and again it is a triumphant message though it came from a dungeon cell the great outstanding theme of the letter is the importance of faithfulness to christ even in the midst of our suffering and tribulation. And even as I'm recording this, much of the world is under great suffering and great tribulation. As in First Timothy, Paul begins the second letter by stating his apostleship of, to Christ Jesus by the determination of God, not his own, who decreed it and willed it according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To be sure, wherever Jesus is, there is life and life to the fullest measure. Jesus himself states in John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, he says in John 10, 10. As Paul awaited death, he knew there was the promise of life for those who are in Christ Jesus. This was not his home, He was on a mission here. He was headed to heaven. The gospel gives life because at the heart of its message is the God-man, Jesus Christ. It all revolves around Jesus, who himself is our life. The gospel is like water. Man did not invent it, and man cannot live without it. Therefore, faithful servants of Jesus are to take this living water to thirsty men and women, and give them a drink. Are we being faithful in this endeavor? God calls us by his will and shapes us by his grace. Paul did not volunteer for the job of apostle. He was summoned to it. He did not make a career move, so to speak. He was appointed Paul describes his calling with pronounced awareness of God's sovereign grace and divine will. In 1 Timothy 1.12, he states, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Faithfulness is so huge. When God calls you to do something, be about what he's called you to do. It is important to note that God did not shape Paul into a gospel-centered leader apart from Paul's own spiritual sweat and blood. To be sure, the apostle was a worker. He writes that he worked more than any of them. But Paul's work was preceded by God's work of calling him. And Paul's work was made possible by the enabling grace of God through the Holy Spirit's power. He writes... But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. Is His grace to you without effect? No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 1 Corinthians 15.10 We who trust in Christ Jesus, not too dissimilar to the Apostle Paul, are called by God Himself by His own will and pleasure. By his power he enables us to live faithfully before him for his glory. Yet many of us go around often unprepared, seeking to discern where God wants to use us, jumping from here to there. My friend Donna says, get your gifts ready and God will use them. Fervently pray that God would fan into flames your gifts with all of us as Christians i been given a gift, at least one gift, to be used for His glory and the furtherance of His kingdom. I have found this to be true in my own life. He, his will is not something we just muster up. Scripture tells us, however, as, as it is written, and, and this is in 1 Corinthians 2, 9-11, through 11, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And God says of Himself, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways. There's so much higher than the heavens, than your ways and your thoughts. When we offer ourselves to God in worship, and do not conform to the pattern of this world, rather renew our minds daily on God's perfect world, as Paul tells us in Romans 12, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, His pleasing, and His perfect will. Our responsibility is to be readied vessels for His bidding. Purging iniquity as the Spirit brings it to light, and keeping our accounts short, always simply doing the next right thing. Like us, Timothy was still a work in progress, and Paul was eager to encourage him. Paul tells us in Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul adds grace, mercy, and peace to the introduction of this letter, which simply equates to the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Next, Paul turns our attention to his thankfulness to God, whom he served with a clear conscience for Timothy by constantly remembering him in his prayers. A clear conscience indicates Paul was guiltless, not sinless, but guiltless. As all believers... He was robed in the righteousness of Christ. Yet we daily come to Jesus for repentance, keeping our accounts short for continual cleansing by the living water. As David, as King David states, have mercy on me, God, Psalm 51, 1 and 2 and 7. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. God has cleansed Paul's guilty heart from an evil conscience through the work of Christ, as Hebrews tells us. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews ten twenty two. Paul put into practice what he preached. As he stated, he prayed continually night and day with a constant remembrance of Timothy. He writes in 1 Thessalonians, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That is easy to say and hard to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. David Jeremiah writes, if we are consistent men and women who take God at his word, who believe that prayer changes things, who pray without ceasing, who will not lose heart at our praying, who day after day will pray no matter what seems to be happening around us, who keep trusting God, then there will come a time when God will say, I can answer that believer's prayer because that's a person who can handle the answer. Prayer is the mightiest of all weapons that creates natures that created natures can will. Martin Luther said also Jeremiah writes, we err when we judge our prayers solely by what we can see happening around us. Quit looking at your circumstances, get your eyes focused up, set your hearts and minds on things above, not on earthly things. Prayer is a matter of faith. Prayer is taking God at his word. Pray back the scriptures. He's given us many promises to claim. Prayer is understanding God's promise that if we pray, He will work. And we must keep on praying even when we cannot see what He is doing, especially when you cannot see what He is doing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways to acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. We do not see into the world in which God lives. We don't see as He sees. But he definitely sees into ours. Paul writes how the tears, how with tears that he had longed to see his beloved son in the faith, so that he may be filled with joy. Paul had invested in Timothy as his mentor and cared deeply for him. He had helped him in his calling, character, competency, and courage, encouraging him to pursue godliness, endurance, love, and other Christ-like qualities. He had invested his life into Timothy. Paul had poured his life out like a drink offering for his son in the faith, and he missed him dearly. When we are alone in desperate situations, don't we long to see those who are dear to our hearts? It's a yearning that we have to be encouraged with their presence and to be comforted with their love. Paul here demonstrates this longing to us. Paul then addresses the blessing of a godly heritage, which should not be understated. (laughs) To be sure, grace is not inherited. It doesn't just happen because your mom and dad were Christians. Every individual has to be born again, no matter how pious and devoted his parents may have been. But on the other hand, it is a great thing to have a godly heritage, to have parents who have known and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy not only had the privilege of a godly mentor in Paul, he also had the gift of a godly mother, Eunice, and a grandmother, Lois. These ladies had had a sincere faith and, like Paul, poured their lives into Timothy. We should never undervalue the enormous blessing of believing parents and be ever grateful for them. Our gratitude should cause us to flesh out what was caused what was passed on to us as well is may those who come behind us find us faithful. Let the fire of our devotion light their way. Yet we are also reminded of how every child must do his or her own believing. We cannot believe for them. Timothy had had the blessing of a Christian mentor, a Christian mother, and a Christian grandmother. But he still had to believe for himself. This is a heads-up here for parents of wee ones as well. Having children is a wonderful gift from God, but with these gifts comes great responsibilities. Are we teaching our kids the scriptures? They're like little sponges when they're young. They can memorize incredibly quickly. It's disgusting. So fast. Do they see us, in us a sincere faith in Christ? Do they see in us Christ? Our actions, do our actions point to them? Because our actions will always speak louder than our words. One cannot overstate the importance of living out the Christian life before watching children. And believe me, they are watching you. And I do mean it. Explain to your kids that you are in this with them together. We're all big fat sinners in need of a Savior. And it is not easy for you oftentimes either. You will make mistakes too. And so be quick to repent and keep your accounts short. We want to be able to say to our kids sincerely, follow me as I follow Christ, just as Paul did. They desperately need to see Christ fleshed out, as many in our days espouse him. But sadly, few truly seek to walk as he walked. To their own harm, I might add. We are never safer and more satisfied than being in the center of his will, mature and fully assured. And that's a good prayer you can pray for your kids. Train a child in the ways you go, Proverbs tells us. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. He will hear that ringing in his ears. Paul next encourages Timothy to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in him, fan it into a great flame. God always equips his servants to fulfill their ministries by granting them spiritual power and giftings. It is encouraging to remember that God gives his people the authority and enablement to carry out his assignments. He doesn't just say, Beth, I want you to do this, but he gives you the power to do it. Judging by the context of Timothy, he was not a spiritual rock or very courageous. He appears to have been physically weak, personally timid, and relatively young, but thankfully, God delights in using the weak and the ordinary in order to demonstrate His mighty power. He continually uses cracked clay pots, such as me, such as you, so that there is no doubt that only He can receive the glory, because the one who gives the power gets the glory. Second Corinthians four seven Paul writes, "But we have this treasure in jars of clay." to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Jesus also tells us, apart from him, his spirit indwelling us, we can do nothing of eternal value. I am the vine, you are the branches, he tells us in John fifteen five. If a man remains in me, and I am him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, not a, not a thing. Paul also reminded Timothy of his personal responsibilities in becoming a gospel-centered leader. The gifting of the Spirit not only encourages us and inspires worship, but it also inspires hard work. Paul encouraged Timothy to develop and use his gifts as well as maintain spiritual discipline. Paul urged Timothy to keep the fire ablaze by exercising his gifts passionately. God gave Timothy gifts to be used and to be developed. There was no room for sluggishness in the Christian life for any believer. Rest, yes, but laziness, passiveness, and timidity should not characterize the followers of Christ. I love Jim Elliott's prayer. God, he was one that was martyred. God, I pray the, like these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for a design. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. That was by Jim Elliott. Paul also addresses Timothy's shyness and weaknesses and reminds him that his fear did not come from God, and neither does ours. What comes from God is a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self discipline. Boldness, not cowardice, is a mark of Christ's work in believers acts four thirteen tells us when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. He is the one that gives gives us the power. Michael Yusuf writes in a call to be to be unashamed. the key verse. To understanding the entire epistle of Romans is found in Romans 1 16. Here Paul declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is a power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Today the reason so many churches are blessing same-sex marriages neglect neglecting the, the call to evangelism approving other paths to God and preaching self-help instead of the doctrines of sin and salvation is because they have not taken this verse to heart. They are ashamed of the gospel. So they change it. They redefine it. They blunt the two-edged sword of God's word and deactivate its power. And our society is reaping the dire consequences. My friend, the call on your life and mine is to remain unashamed of the gospel, to lovingly lift high the truth of our savior and to trust Him with our lives. All of us will, at one time or another, be tempted to hide our light under a basket. In fact, as you seek to serve and witness for Christ, more and more this temptation may become even stronger. Satan will try to convince us that it's not worth the effort. Beloved, stand firm in that evil day. Remember that it is the gospel that breaks the iron yoke of sin, and the gospel alone shatters the chains of addictions and flings open the heavy gates of darkness. May God grant us each the grace and understanding to remain unashamed. Have you had moments when you wanted to hide your light from others? Ask God for courage to be a faithful witness. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. As God would have it, the object of Timothy's fear remains unclear, which helps us to understand and appreciate that God desires to take away all fears. Isaiah tells us, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The I wills, I wills, I wills of God. Paul essentially tells Timothy, in your fear, remember that God is with you in you, and for you. His Spirit produces the power you need to endure and the love you need to minister. The power you need to endure and the love you need to minister. And sometimes we need that because people can be so stinking sometimes. Be disciplined in this. Be diligent. Be brave. For God is with you. He tells us the exact same thing. Remember, we are to fight fear with the promises of God, and if you don't know them, it's hard to fight fear. The Spirit of God empowering the people of God is sufficient to accomplish the mission of God. God has given us spiritual gifts to execute our ministries and spiritual power to enable our ministries. We do not need to be afraid of others, no matter how great the persecution may be and how great the hatred Jesus tells us in John fifteen, eighteen through 20 If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Sadly, today, the world is more in the church than the church is in the world. To overcome Timothy's timidity, Paul tells him we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. Our witness is about Christ. We are not commending an idea or a society, but a Savior. If there will always be cross-mockers, we need to embrace the passion of Polycarp, who refused to renounce Christ in the face of impending martyrdom. He said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Our generation, as all of them seem to be, have all kinds of conflicting and competing ideologies. One of the more prevalent worldviews is described as moralistic therapeutic deism. This is the belief that if people do good, feel good, and believe in a God, little G, one who created the universe but is not really involved in the affairs of life, then there is a heavenly future awaiting them. The idea that we are actually bad and in need of a savior is it viewed as ignorant, primitive, or simply foolish? All of us, every single person born after Adam and Eve had been born with a sin nature. Born broken, we are not good. As Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. And rightly said, other worldviews have emerged such as the new atheism. This militant brand of atheism rejects not just God, but even rejects a respect for belief in God. Further, the continued growth of other world religions, many of which are hostile towards Christ's followers, makes Paul's charge to Timothy in verse 8 all the more relevant to us. Jesus warns us, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. And when He comes, it will be too late. Jesus tells us many will mock both His person and His words. We are not to be surprised at this. Jonathan Edwards writes, Consider Christ. He was of a meek and quiet spirit, and of a most long-suffering behavior. He was very much the object of bitter contempt and reproach, and slights and despised as as of but little account. Though he, as the Lord of glory, yet he was set at naught and rejected. He was the object of the spit and malice and bitter reviling of the very ones he came to save. He was called a deceiver of people, and oftentimes he was said to be mad, even by his own family, and possessed with the devil. He was charged with being a wicked blasphemer and one that deserved death on that account. They hated him with a morbid hatred and wished that he was dead and from time to time tried to murder him. His life was an annoyance to them, and they hated him so that they could not bear that he should live. Yet Christ meekly, bore all these injuries without resentment or one word of reproach and with heavenly quietness of spirit passed through them all. On the contrary, he prayed for his murderers that they might be forgiven even when they were nailing him to the cross and not only prayed for them but pleaded on their behalf to his father that they knew not what they were doing. Paul was not looking for the approval of man. Oh, no, no, no. And by the way, neither should we. He identifies himself as Christ's prisoner and lives his life out for the audience of one, as should we. He was not in in his chains to earn popular praise of men, but rather to honor the Savior through obedience to God's perfect will without the grumbling and complaining. He writes in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He also writes in Philippians, his life goal, which is so worthy of emulation, Not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and strange for what is ahead, I press on for the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, That, too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Why should anybody be ashamed of the gospel? It answers every question concerning sin and its remedy that the mind of man can possibly raise. God has opened up his heart to men in the gospel. It is his message concerning his blessed son and the salvation he has wrought out for all who believe. Paul wants Timothy to know that he had something of which he never needed to be ashamed of as he went forth in Christ's name, telling how God has given his only begotten Son up in death on the cross that all who put their trust in him might re- be redeemed from sin's guilt and power. Oh, what a blessing! Paul found Christ to be more desirable, more enjoyable. And more beautiful than anything else do you do i i wonder do we esteem our lord as rightly christ was worth everything to paul everything he was definitely a one thing necessary person as jesus talked about mary who sat at his feet even dying was gained for him though living was never purposeful and fruitful was always purposeful and fruitful death would only be the beginning because Christ brought us life and immortality. He states in Philippians, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul tells us next that we are called to a holy life, not from anything we have done, rather because of God's own purpose and grace. There are indications that when one is really controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, These things will be made manifest in the life. There will be power over sin. There will be power as we go to win others to Christ. There will be power as we preach the gospel. There will be love for all men. The Spirit of God will not lead us into fanaticism. Rather, when the Holy Spirit controls a life, there will be a soundness of mind, a gladness of heart, a peaceful spirit. We will serve God in a reasonable and intelligent way. Christ himself is our example. A holy life is the evidence of our salvation. It shows that we are his, that we truly belong to him. Believers do a great deal of harm to God's name and his reputation when we cast off truth and walk in the ways of the world. Most of the time you can't see the difference in a person. If you claim faith, live it through his power, for his glory, for our good. God saves us to sanctify us. He calls us to holiness. God will never be your debtor either. You simply can never outgive him. Paul was appointed a herald, just as we are, of the gospel. Remember, God saves people through, not apart from, the proclamation of the good news. We are to shine the gospel light in this dark world Paul tells us in Romans, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In Romans ten fourteen through 15. A people without understanding Hosea states will come to ruin We must be faithful in speaking both boldly and courageously. God has opened up his heart to men in the gospel. It is his message concerning his blessed son and the salvation he has wrought out for all who will believe. Yet it was because of this faithfulness that Paul was in prison. Don't be surprised when troubles come. Really, we should expect it. Troubles come to non-believers as well, though. Peter tells us, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when your glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 1 Peter 4, 12-14 Religious people find God useful, but cross-bearing disciples find him beautiful. We can endure suffering when we see what Paul saw. Paul was not being carried to heaven on a bed of down by any means, and doubtful will we be. He was in prison. He was enduring much hardship. He was suffering for Christ's name, who gave himself for lost mankind, in order that he might carry that gospel to the world Paul had given up all his earthly ambitions, which were many, considering them but rubbish. He had given himself wholly to this one purpose of carrying the message from nation to nation, people to people, city to city. Paul states he is not ashamed of his present position because he knew that he knew that he knew on whom he had believed. Notice that he did not say, I know what I have believed, as, it is, as that is one thing to know what he believed, which of course he did, but rather I know whom I have believed. Paul knew the Lord Jesus would guard all that Paul had entrusted to him on that great day. His reward was coming and he was certain of it. Paul lived with heaven in his eyes and earth under his feet and that is exactly how God desires for all of his followers to live. The Apostle Paul had committed his very soul to the Lord Jesus, and he knew that God would not let him down. He lived and breathed and walked in God's love, and that is why he was able to say in Romans, for I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In in Romans 8, 38-39, Paul encourages his timid, timid Timothy to follow his example of teaching. Keep it as a pattern with faith and love in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1. How that we would be able to say that, or even seek to be able to say that. It really does matter how we live our lives. Paul greatly desired for Timothy to guard the truth that he had been entrusted to him. It was a good deposit, and he was to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Many in Asia had turned away from the pure milk of God's truth. Many in America have as well. And it was a great grief to the apostle. The truth needed to be guarded from the false teachers permeating their mit- in their midst, just as it is in every generation. False teachers had come in and they had turned the saints away from the full gospel message that Paul had taught them and they had repudiated him, no longer recognizing him as an apostle of Christ. John Stott writes, we may see the evangelical faith, the faith of the gospel everywhere spoken against, and the apostolic message of the New Testament ridiculed. We may have to watch an increasing apostasy in the church as our generation abandons the faith of its fathers. Do not be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to be fully extinguished. He always has a remnant. True, he has committed it to us, frail and fallible creatures. He has placed his treasure in brittle earthenware vessels, and we must play our part in guarding and defending the truth. Nevertheless, in entrusting the deposit into our hands, he has not taken his own hands off of it. Lastly, Paul illustrates what unashamed sacrificial service looks like through the life of a nisperus, I can't ever say it, leaving us to question which example we are more like, Vigellus or Hermogenes, who are ashamed of the gospel, or a nisperus who works hard to refresh others. The first were quick to flee when faithful obedience and boldness were required. You know, this reminds me of uh, the parable... Of the, of the chairs and of when he sowed the seeds and, and, and then all the different ways that it came up. And some were followed real quickly like a firecracker in the sky and then they blow away and fall away. And some are in it for the long haul and you want to be in it for the long haul. Um, the first were quick to flee when faithful obedience and boldness required while in this verse was loyal and faithful. and. With much effort, he sought to encourage others. It was as if Inesiphorus was unafraid to say, I'm not ashamed to stand by that prisoner in the dungeon and state that we are friends, that he and I stand for the same things, that he and I serve the same master. He boldly identified himself with the prisoner of the Lord. How his presence must have encouraged Paul during this time. The people who minister to you most are those who are willing to stand by you when the scoffers of faith are attacking. May we be that loving and caring, placing ourselves in others' shoes, breathing life into their dry and weary bones. May we never be ashamed of Jesus' high calling on our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for these words. We pray that you would help us to apply them to our lives and be a changed people for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.